Lymphoma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello and welcome to the Lymphoma Hub Podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Michael Wang from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, US, and Peter Martin of Wild Cornell Medicine in New York, US. Hi, I'm Peter Martin from the Lymphoma Program at Wild Cornell Medicine in New York. Uh, we recently presented some data looking at uh, real-world evidence regarding the frontline treatment of mantle cell lymphoma. The data were derived from the flat iron uh, electronic health, health record uh, data set, and they come from uh, several institutions, 80% of uh, which were community practices throughout the United States. We collected data on uh, roughly 4,000 uh, patients diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma between January of 2011 and January 2021. And uh, the purpose of the study really was to look at practice patterns. In other words, um, I think Brian Link uh, summarized this very well in his discussion at ASCO. Um, We can't really move forward if we don't know where we are and where we've been. We also wanted to look at uh, outcomes, which are are particularly relevant outside of the academic uh, medical setting, which is where most of the existing uh, observational data comes from. And then lastly, we wanted to look at um, the role of stem cell transplantation. Separately, uh, we're also presenting data on the role of rituximab maintenance uh, at the EHA and Lugano meetings. Dr. Gilles Sal is leading, leading those uh, analyses. So ultimately what we found were really uh, three findings. One, that practice patterns did not necessarily mimic what you might expect based on clinical trial trial data. So in patients over 65, roughly 40% uh, were receiving bendamustine rituximab. I think the vast majority of clinical trials in older patients currently focus on bendamustine rituximab, so you might expect those numbers to be higher. We found in patients under 65 that roughly a quarter were receiving cytarabine-based therapy, and fewer than that were receiving stem cell transplantation. Um, and, And with respect to outcomes, we also found that outcomes did not necessarily mimic what you might expect. Um based on data using those regimens in clinical trials. So for example, uh, in patients over 65, the uh, average time to next therapy was in the range of about two years, maybe a little bit longer in patients under age 65. So you'd probably expect, I mean, we've seen clinical trial data produce uh, results that significantly exceed that. For example, at the same meeting in ASCO, Mitchell Smith presented the results of the E1411 trial where we uh, used bendamustine rituximab-based therapy and found a median progression-free survival in in patients over age 65 of of roughly five years. So quite a bit better than what we see in quote-unquote real-world observational data set. And then lastly, when we looked specifically at patients under age 65 who did not initiate a second therapy within six months of starting their first therapy, we define that as a stem cell transplant eligible patient population. We didn't see any real significant difference in time to next therapy or overall survival relating to receipt of stem cell transplantation. So there are obviously a few caveats with a study like this. Uh, It's observational 
data, meaning it, it relies on how well um, data are reported in electronic medical records and extracted from those electronic medical records. We have no um, ideas with respect to the intention of any therapy. We have missing data regarding a number of uh, patient variables, especially the performance status is not necessarily recorded frequently in uh, routine medical records, routine clinical practice. And all of that uh, significantly impacts the kinds of conclusions we can make regarding these therapies. For example, I don't think you can say that treatment X or treatment Y is better or worse based on data like this. We can simply report on what, what we observed. Um, but despite these limitations, I think there are a few um, uh, hypotheses that are worth exploring or thoughts that are worth exploring. One of these is, you know, why is it that we see practice patterns that are different uh, between clinical trials and routine uh, practice, largely in community-based uh, community centers? One potential explanation is that the patient populations being seen in those settings are different. So maybe patients being seen in community practices are sicker or not eligible for clinical trials. That's certainly a possibility. Another possibility is that potentially as um, academic clinicians uh, and researchers, maybe we need to do a better job of uh, designing educational strategies to help people understand what the uh, ideal treatment options are in different settings. Another uh, potential uh, conclusion is that um, maybe when we're designing treatment regimens for mantle cell lymphoma, we have to consider that not all of the treatment regimens we design are deliverable in every setting. And I think that's certainly the case with very intensive therapies. If the bulk of patients are being treated in community centers, then when we're coming up with new treatment regimens, we have to consider can this treatment regimen be delivered as intended in every setting in the United States? And um, I think that's it's particularly sort of a take-home point for me. You know, I've been very interested in the development of better treatment regimens for mantle cell lymphoma, often incorporating uh, novel therapies, targeted therapies, immunotherapies. And on the one hand, uh, I think these could be very uh, you know, generalizable to multiple practices because they don't involve high doses of chemotherapy and hospitalization, but ultimately it will take time to see whether or not that's uh, really true. Uh, I think you could argue very effectively that uh, patient groups should be involved in the design of clinical trials, or at least uh, in the discussion prior to the design of clinical trials to determine whether or not these trials really meet the actual needs of, of patients being seen in the uh, quote unquote real world. And then lastly, you know, the, the finding that stem cell transplantation may not impact time to next treatment or overall survival is an interesting one that is currently being evaluated in two international clinical trials, well, one in the United States and then one in Europe. It probably will take some time for those trials to produce results, but with the totality of the observational data that are coming out and finding similar findings, I think um, 
it's reasonable to think about designing clinical trials that don't include intensive therapy in younger patients. So phase, phase two data, phase one data, looking at less intensive treatment regimens in younger, younger patients. I think that's a very reasonable next step. Lastly, again, you know, all of these data observational from one data set, I think it's worthwhile validating them in other data sets. So looking at them in academic medical centers, seeing if they hold, hold up there, looking at them in uh, other countries uh, that use maybe different medical systems and seeing if they hold up there. And if the data are sort of consistently accurate, then I think it, they become more um, likely to be true. Those observations become more likely to be true and we can take a little bit more confidence in the next steps. Those are my thoughts, but I'm happy to pass the mic to uh, Dr. Michael Wong from MD Anderson to hear what uh, he thinks about these data. Hello, my name is Michael Wong. I'm the Putin Clark Endowed Professor in the Lymphoma Myeloma Department at MD Anderson, Houston, Texas. It is my pleasure today to uh, share with you my opinions. I really think that uh, Dr. Martin uh, uh, has presented a, a real exciting and uh, uh, analysis of over 2,000 mentosome lymphoma uh, patients in the real world setting. I'm very uh, honored to be uh, among the authorship. Dr. Martin and, and us together, uh, we analyzed over 2,000 uh, uh, patients with mentosome lymphoma and revealed the real world pattern of uh, therapies for mentosome lymphoma. The, I think the data uh, faithfully captured the real world uh, practice uh, of frontline therapies, including uh, betamustine, rituximab, um, RCHOP uh, uh, with maintenance, with or without maintenance, and uh, R2 sometimes, and uh, in younger people, uh, transplant uh, uh, in, according to Nordic therapy. Uh, first of all, I think this uh, uh, there's a gap between the frontline uh, research uh, clinical trial data. When, when the data is presented in the academically at meetings, and when does it uh, actually get used in the community? There's a gap time. The gap time could be uh, a long time, could be a year or two, uh, sometimes even longer. So uh, we always have to uh, wait for the uh, community doctors to digest the data. And uh, with uh, sometimes uh, the data needs to be represented, uh, discussed, the questions answered. So I think uh, uh, the current uh, Frontline studies uh, captured uh, the research about uh, uh, five or some years ago and, and even longer. We are making uh, a lot of uh, progress in the front setting. For example, the uh, uh, R2 therapy uh, uh, published by the Cornell group uh, headed by Dr. Ryan Jia. Uh, her paper uh, manuscript uh, was published in England Journal of Medicine uh, quite some years ago. And now I can see that the people are starting to use this regimen in the front line. But a more recent uh, research result, including the Amy Anderson window uh, study, um, which uses uh, ibrutinib rituximab in the window of opportunity for chemo-free therapy uh, induction followed by chemotherapy consolidation. Although this is already in the NCC guideline, but uh, I think we need some more time uh, for it to be uh, used in the community. 
And also there's more researchers uh, uh, with chemo-free combinations, for example, the rituximab in combination with ibertinib, also a clinical trial done at MD Anderson. Uh, this uh, uh, is gonna be published very soon and I hope that uh, communities could also start considering potential applications in the community. Many, many other programs uh, uh, like the LISA group uh, headed by Dr. Stephen Lugol in France also published the chemo-free therapies with anti-CD20, minocast uh, and uh, uh, ibrutinib in a frontline setting and a relapse setting. The result is also good. There's many, many good, exciting data coming like this and I hope eventually it will be used in the community to bring uh, better choices uh, uh, and more options for the patients. In the future, I think the CAR T cells will be used in the frontline setting and that uh, exciting uh, development uh, for high-risk patients, uh, mentosone and pharma are still waiting. Uh, even the research data has not come out. So these are the futures uh, for the frontline therapy in mentosone and pharma. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lymphoma Hub podcast. We would also like to thank our supporters, Bristol Myers Squibb, Genentech, Insight, Roche, and Novartis. Lymphoma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.